Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. What can be done to help nations reduce the possibilities of going to war? I guess today is an expert in this area. Mr. David Swanson is an author, activist, journalist, and radio host. Mr. Swanson is the executive director of worldbeyondwar.org, and he is a campaign coordinator for rootsaction.org. David Swanson, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on. David, I appreciate you being with me. We've got a very heavy topic to deal with today. Before we get into that, though, tell us a little bit about your worldbeyondwar.org group. What is What does it do? What's its main purpose? Oh, this was an organization started up almost seven years ago now uh, to be global and to go after the whole institution of war. So not to oppose a particular war in a particular country or a particular weapon, but to go after the investment of massive funding uh, by governments around the world in the institution of war, because that's, that's the biggest problem. You know, 3% of just US military funding could end starvation on earth. It's, it's the diversion of resources that's more deadly than any of the weapons. And so we wanted to organize as we've done, a global organization run globally to take on this global business of weapons dealing and war making. Uh, and uh, rootsaction.org is another organization I work for that works on all kinds of, of issues, including peace, but uh, justice and environment and, and every other uh, worthy topic as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you've written many books, excellent books, and we would encourage people to go to your website to focus in on, you've got so many, but one of them is War is Alive. What was the thrust of that book? This was meant to be, and to some small extent, has become a a handbook to be used in recognizing uh, lies about wars more quickly. You know, there's this habit, uh, in in particular in the United States, where I'm from, of a large number of people, sometimes even a majority, being all right with or cheering for the initiation of a war, and then telling all the polling companies within a year, year and a half, this war, which is ongoing, should never have been started. Well, that's too late, you know, and and the lies are transparent to begin with, uh, and the lies are about the wrong topic to begin with, right? So they're not just blatantly lying that Iraq has weapons, but having weapons is no excuse for starting a war. The United States itself had all the weapons. So it's, it's always the wrong question answered in the wrong way, and it fools too many people. And so War is a Lie is a guide to types of lies, examples of lies, and how to, how to spot them. Mm-hmm. Today, it seems like most of the foreign policy analysts, I don't care if you're liberal, conservative, whatever, come to the conclusion that the invasion in Iraq in 2003 was illegal. It was a drastic mistake. It destabilized the Middle East. It made the situation much worse. And many of the problems we're dealing with today came directly 
from that invasion. What could have been done differently? What could the media have played a better role? The media really rolled over on that one in some cases. And I'm, I'm talking about even the mainstream media like New York Times and some of the others, but what could have been done to prevent that? Well, simply don't attack Iraq is the short answer. Uh, the, the, the Senate held hearings uh, where not a single witness who was opposed to attacking Iraq was permitted to testify. These were chaired by a senator named uh, something like Joe Biden, I believe his name was, uh, some, some guy like that. And, and the media was outrageously irresponsible. Uh, a, you know, a tiny fraction of guests on major talk shows and of op-ed authors uh, were permitted to have a voice who opposed attacking Iraq. Uh, so the, the public got the impression from the media that the vast majority of people favored this war, respected this war, thought this war was was okay. Uh, and you saw, you know, you saw dramatic differences in how the US media presented, for example, a speech at the UN by Colin Powell and how media around the world presented it uh, as, you know, laughably implausible uh, in some cases. So yes, the media, among other factors, uh, has much to answer for. It was not fairly covered or justly covered, that's for sure. Well, we've in discussions, you've laid out that how war is immoral, how it is not beneficial to humans. Obviously, it's easy to start a war. It's hard to stop a war. Uh, but what, how, do, how do wars and the Defense Department investments adversely affect individuals, their budgets, and also our planet? We're talking about climate change now. That's really our number one problem, it seems like, according to a lot of scientists and experts. But how do those tie together as far as being endangered by the, the creation of wars? Well, I think there are twin catastrophes, apocalypses facing us. One of them is nuclear apocalypse. The, the scientists put their doomsday clock closer to midnight now than it has ever been. We are at far greater risk of nuclear disaster than we have ever been, uh, and it is far less talked about. So we only hear about the other looming apocalypse, which is climate collapse, environmental collapse. Uh, and they are closely tied in many, many ways. You, you, you know, as a result of US pressure at the last minute, the Kyoto Treaty excluded military pollution from the climate limitations. And that has gone on with these other treaties, the Paris Agreement and so forth. Yet the US military alone you know, emits more carbon pollution, does more damage to the climate than most countries on earth. Uh, the US military would be you know, ahead of three quarters of the countries in a list. Uh, and yet it's excluded. Uh, and it's excluded from conversation as well, that the militarism uh, by militaries around the globe is a major destroyer of, of earth, water, land, uh, all forms of, of our environment, and is a top potential source of the funding needed uh, for a Green New Deal, for an, uh, for an attempt to halt the damage. Uh, and uh, until we're willing to shift, as the U.S. Congress was unwilling months back, to shift even 10% of that funding to useful purposes, we will have a hard time uh, creating the sort of Green New Deal that's needed. How much are we spending, how much do the countries of the world spend on their defense budgets and their arms sales, just roughly speaking, per year? 
Well, if you were to hunt for weapons and activities and forces that were actually defensive in any way, it would be a, a ridiculously small number. But if you translate the term defense to mean militaries, uh, which are, for the most part, blatantly offensive, you're talking very roughly about $2 trillion a year, with very roughly half of it from the United States alone, very roughly three quarters from the United States and its close allies, uh, most of whom are are major purchasers of US-made weaponry. So a, a reverse arms race uh, could be kickstarted, in fact, could be halfway accomplished uh, simply by the United States ceasing to be the top supplier of weaponry to dictatorships and so-called democracies alike around the world, uh, and by taking a small step in the right direction itself. Now, if we just take the US as an example, our budget, our defense budget, is about 750 billion a year. They bumped it up about another 30 or 40 billion a year or two ago, but that's not really the only expense involved, is it? Uh, it's it's a much larger part of your gross domestic product, is it not? Well, if you look at U.S. government spending on militarism, and you include what you mentioned, the Pentagon, which is roughly 740 billion and the nuclear weapons, which are in the energy department of all things, uh, and all the, the secret alphabet spy agencies and all the militarism in the State Department and other branches of government and the debt on past wars and so forth. It's, it's around a one and a quarter trillion dollars a year, just US military spending. Uh, but it is a bigger part of the US economy because as I said, the United States is the top supplier of weaponry to other countries. Uh, that does not mean it's a jobs program. It's an economically beneficial uh, project. Uh, in fact, military spending eliminates jobs. It's very hard for people to grasp because all their friends have jobs in the military. But if you spent those same dollars on education or green energy or infrastructure, you would have more jobs for more people and better paying in most cases. Yes, the economists, liberals and conservatives alike have said that if you put a dollar in the Defense Department, as opposed to an infrastructure project or whatever, you will get more bounce for your buck in the infrastructure project. You mentioned jobs or the Defense Department jobs as being a jobs program. Seems like that the vast majority of the members of Congress, and I include just about everybody in there, look upon their bases in their states. They look upon their any type of revenue generated from the military as a jobs program that they really assiduously try to protect. I, it seems like that they nobody wants to shut down anything. I've, I, I can give you numerous examples, and you know a bunch, but I was just thinking about uh, Congressman John Boehner, a classic example. When he was Speaker of the House years ago, there was a, I think it was a tank uh, production line in his district. And, there were, and the military, the Army said, we don't want tanks. We're not in the tank age anymore. And he said, we're going to build tanks. I'm not having whatever four or 5,000 people of my constituents laid off. Is that the general philosophy? This has been a widespread problem for decades is, uh, is a likely explanation of the latest uh, military bill uh, funding more F-35 uh, fighter planes than asked for and so forth. They made that constructing weapons in little bits and pieces across dozens of congressional districts, as well as funding congressional campaigns. These have been sources of corruption for many, many years. I think what's changed is the, is the respectability of it so that you have Congress members not denying it, but openly, shamelessly 
pro pronouncing it a jobs program, uh, you know, falsely, if you ask the economists. Uh, and, and I think this is in part because the weapons dealers are funding so many so-called think tanks. You look at everybody writing about the need to confront China and the need to confront Iran and so forth, and look at the think tanks they come from and where all that money's coming from. And it's coming from weapons contractors uh, and, and in many cases, uh, foreign dictatorships that are huge uh, weapons purchasers. Uh, so the, the corruption has grown, uh, but the, you know, this, this system of, of you of dangling jobs before Congress members is, is nothing new. Right. We've all read about Dwight David Eisenhower, who was president from 1952 to 1960. And of course he was an iconic figure, a military figure in world war II. And in one of his last speeches, he warned against the military industrial complex. What exactly did he mean by that? And how influential is it today in developing the defense budgets and the allocations in the various states? Well, it was arguably very influential even in his day, even on his actions, even on other sections of that same speech. Uh, but he was absolutely right, uh, maybe more right than he could have imagined or feared uh, in warning against the influence, uh, the power of companies uh, controlling you know, over half of US discretionary spending, over half of the money Congress decides what to do with every year now goes to the, the military, to these major weapons companies uh, that fund congressional campaigns, fund think tanks, uh, fund media outlets. Uh, and he warned that the, the influence would be uh, corrupting and, and would be all pervasive, uh, would be insidious. Uh, and and I, I doubt he feared how severe it has become today, but it is, it is ubiquitous. It is overwhelming. Uh, the, the idea of ending war is beyond the imagination uh, of most people in a way that it, that it wasn't 100 years ago. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you just have a computer, you have a website, you like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at the whole issue of war. There are few things are as important as wars between and amongst peoples. And my guest is an expert on dealing with this issue. My guest today is Mr. David Swanson, David Swanson is an author, activist, journalist, and radio host. He's also executive director of worldbeyondwar.org and campaign coordinator for rootsaction.org. David, we're talking about the Pentagon and we're talking about the, the situation where it's so easy to get into a war, very difficult to get out of one. Uh, as we think back to uh, some hands-on examples, I guess, I uh, think of the uh, Korean conflict, 1953, uh, 1950 to 1953, how could that have been avoided? It, would it have been possible to do it given the, the Cold War that was raging at that time, given that there was so much mistrust, especially between the 
the uh, sort of the Western Bloc and the Eastern uh, Bloc, but with the old Soviet Union? Well, was it necessary to install a brutal dictatorship in South Korea? Was it necessary to divide a country in half? Uh, was it necessary to create a Cold War? Uh, was it necessary to, to destroy North Korea to the extent that it was destroyed, to the extent to the to to the extent that the North Korean government very easily uses uh, of U.S. led horrors uh, to to generate uh, hostility to this day. Uh, for that matter, is it necessary to this day for the U.S. military to maintain wartime control over the South Korean military and massive military bases in South Korea and war rehearsals uh, on the edge of North Korea and, and threats to North Korea? Uh, is it necessarily to be threatening nuclear war? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see why any of these things are, are are justified, much less necessary. So one way to defuse the tension between the North Koreans and the United States or North Korea, Kim Jong-un and the US would be to stop military exercises, to stop threatening one another, try to move towards some form of at least communication. Uh, maybe we won't call them negotiations, but there, there are techniques that can be used to defuse a particular problem. Right. When you are imposing uh, very arguably illegal, certainly uh, very harmful sanctions on a, on a whole people, uh, when you are threatening, when you are engaging in war rehearsals, when you are stationing bases and weapons and missiles on a border uh, and using this uh, country as a means of generating more military spending in yours, uh, to suggest that there's nothing that can be done, it's just an age-old problem, uh, you know, is absurd. Uh, the, the, the North Koreans uh, and the United States arguably largely complied with an agreement back in the 1990s, uh, and it was undone principally by the United States. There is no reason that the United States cannot allow the people of Korea to take steps toward peace and unification uh, and can get out of a, of, a, of a part of the world where it's causing more harm than good. What do you do, just play devil's advocate, what do you do with a situation like China does not want to see a reunification of the Korean Peninsula? We, you and I and the majority of people probably think that's a good idea to do that because the South Koreans, uh, first of all, they have a larger population and a much larger economy and would probably prevail. But how do you deal with China and how do you make that reunification work? China does not want to see U.S. bases and troops and war rehearsals in North Korea. It would rather see them in South Korea, but it would much rather not see them at all. Right. Uh, and for the United States to back off, to stop claiming ownership of the entire Pacific, including the South China Sea, as Hillary Clinton famously claimed in a speech to a Goldman Sachs crowd, uh, and, and scale back rather than constantly expanding the ships and the missiles and the bases and the threats, uh, China would respond accordingly. Uh, if the United States scales back military spending 10%, China, which spends about a third what the United States does to begin with, would, I, I, I am almost certain, do so as well. A, a reverse arms race with China is, is absolutely possible and very easy to begin. As we run into situations where we have less and less money, well, it's 
it's a matter of priorities. I understand that, but there, we've been talking about an infrastructure pro project now for years, for at least three to four years, it's never happened. And so many people in, in Congress say, well, we don't have the money, but we're gonna see more of a competition for diminishing funds as we go along because we've got bridges and roads that are just absolutely falling apart. And yet we keep beefing up the defense budget, but can you see us actually moving towards some type of reinvestment in our infrastructure as opposed to the war machine? Uh, we, we have no choice. It has to be done, uh, and it is easily done. Uh, and, you know, there are areas where the United States spends more money than it needs to in the wrong ways, such as healthcare, spends more money than anybody else, but gets less, dumping it all into insurance companies, uh, and militarism and the generation of, of billionaires are expenses we do not need. You saw in the same week uh, in late 2020, the, the refusal to come up with more than $600 for households lacking income and lacking health care, uh, but the, the perfect bipartisan harmony in throwing another $742 billion at the Pentagon, uh, plus a half a billion dollars more for Israel to buy US weapons. I mean, money just thrown around madly while simultaneously claiming there isn't any money uh, for human or environmental needs. Uh, this is a lie that more and more people see through. And you had a good chunk of the Congress, including the Senate Majority Leader Schumer, uh, backing the moving of 10% out of militarism several months back. That, that has to be accomplished. That has to actually be done. And then another 10% and another 10%. Uh, there, there's no question. Uh, otherwise, we're the, as you say, the pretense that we're running out of money will continue and will be disastrous. The number one mission of any government, it doesn't matter the US, the Bolivian, whatever, Chinese, is to protect its citizens from internal and, well, domestic and international threats. What would be what would be a good I mean a fair amount a just amount to provide for proper defense of the United States because we all want to be safe we don't want a situation where we go to war or whatever the case might be but we have to maintain our safety what should a seven hundred or yeah seven hundred forty billion dollar defense department budget look like to provide that security. How about uh, a stipulation that the United States government not spend more than three times the second biggest military spender on earth and cease arming other governments or at least brutal oppressive other governments? Uh, those two steps in my mind would, would kickstart a reverse arms race and a move in the direction that would make less and less military spending appear more and more reasonable to more and more people. What can be done internationally? We see that the United Nations, which is very limited in what it can do because you have 193 sovereign states and they all guard their sovereignty jealously, but the UN does have, what, 13 peacekeeping missions right now and dangerous areas of the world, Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, a variety of other places. But what role can the UN play or what kind of international machinery could be created to help provide security so that there would not be a need for countries to go to war? 
Well, there are many ways the UN could be dramatically improved uh, and reformed. Uh, the UN not only has the problem of representing nations rather than populations, but five of those nations are a heck of a lot more sovereign than all the other ones uh, and have veto power over the agenda at the United Nations. Uh, and they are uh, five of the biggest weapons dealers and war makers on earth running the show at an institution that was created to rid humanity of the scourge of war. Democratize, get rid of that veto power, create an actually democratic United Nations, abandon the lawless notion of the responsibility to pro protect as a justification for wars, uh, cease the, the idea of, of authorizing wars, uh, and move in the direction of the wisdom and the success and the accomplishments of unarmed peacekeepers uh, in place of armed peacekeepers. Uh, the UN could do a, a heck of a lot more than what it's doing right now. And you were talking about the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, the United States, the United Kingdom, China, Russia, and France. So those are the, of course, they were the victors of World War II. And when they created the United Nations in 1945, they set it up so that they would have control as to the way they do today. But there are many reforms that can be brought to the United Nations to help improve it. You mentioned several of them. Well, in closing, Dave, in the last 30 seconds, hardest part, what can we do to end the scourge of war. As it says in the United Nations Charter, what can you and I and people around the world do? 30 second answer is go to worldbeyondwar.org, sign the pledge that you wanna help work to end war, check the little boxes that tell us what you wanna get involved with and what you don't, so we can best work with you uh, and help build this global movement to educate and engage in nonviolent activism to end war. Well, David, it is such an important topic, and it is one that we need to learn much more about and to get involved into the decision-making process, because it does affect, affect us. It affects us financially. It affects us materially. It affects our environment. It affects us psychologically, morally, immorally, if you want to put it that way, but it is so critical. But David Swanson, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. My great pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.